Well, it is a great opportunity this week, as I've shared, uh, to get together uh, over the course of five days. You know, during this month, students and graduates throughout Australia are doing the very same thing. You're not alone. In fact, just at the um, scout camp around the corner, the regional New South Wales campuses gathered just last week to do exactly the same thing. So those of you from regional New South Wales, I hope you're puffing your chest out with pride now. They've gathered and done their thing. And my prayer is that as we meet this week, we will adorn the person and work of the Holy Spirit as the third person of our glorious God and that we will do so by hearing his voice in scripture and responding accordingly. So will you pray with me as we begin this journey? We thank you, dear Father, for the privilege it is to gather this night. And we pray that you will so speak to us so that our hearts might be transformed, so that our lives might be renewed, so that we will indeed seek your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The coming of the Holy Spirit was an extraordinary moment in history. But most people missed it. But for those who listened to God's voice through his word, he, the Holy Spirit, was long expected. Long expected. And according to Peter, the Spirit of Christ was at work throughout the ages. And that's what we just had read to us. Now have a look there again. <clears throat> it's just part of that section that was read out for us just a moment ago. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Note this, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, note, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I believe in angels. Do you? Angels are in heaven. Angels are at work by God. And they are longing to look into the things that we know from the scriptures. This week is a supernatural encounter with God in his word involving angelic beings. Do you know that? Now, in light of that, I want to ask you now, and this may seem academic, but I promise you, even though God is, is at work supernaturally, he's given us brains 
and wants us to use them to hear his voice and understand how it is to understand and, and live out his word. So I'm going to get you to speak with one another and ask you this question, what do we learn about the spirit in these verses? Can you speak to one another for a moment? Just, just a minute and then I'll hear some answers and then we'll keep going. What do you learn about the spirit from these verses? I've put that in red just for you. Okay, I know that's not long, but I'm going to try and gather some thoughts here. What do you learn about the Spirit from these verses? Can I start with the red team? Anybody in the red team willing to share just one thing you've learned from these verses about the Spirit of God? Anybody? He's the Spirit of Christ. Thank you. That's really helpful to note, isn't it? So you always get in early, you get the, the easy ones, right? It's actually printed there. He's the Spirit of Christ. Now, please note, that's really important, isn't it? Firstly, to speak about the Holy Spirit without reference to the other members of the Trinity would be like speaking about Wimbledon and not mentioning Curios in this last Wimbledon. Like, it'd just be crazy. You've got to mention one without the other, right? He's the Spirit of Christ. Now... As an aside now, please note, we're dealing with God who is Trinity, aren't we? God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And there are seven things that you can learn about the Trinity. Firstly, you've got seven fingers. I learnt this from someone else. Firstly, there is one God. Secondly, that the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Right? You got all that? Seven points. It's quite easy, isn't it? But, and, and every statement can be shown from the Scriptures, which is why we get the doctrine of the Trinity, even though the word Trinity is not used in the Bible. So when we're dealing with the Spirit of Christ, we're talking about the third person of this Trinity. Blue team, what else do you learn from these verses about the Spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Yes, been working before and since the coming of Christ. How has the Holy Spirit been working before the coming of Christ, according to these verses? I'll stick with the blue team. predicting the Messiah and pointing the prophets. So the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets. Yeah? So the prophets didn't just speak of their own volition. The Spirit of Jesus was working in the Old Testament prophets, prophesying about the Christ and the subsequent glory, the sufferings of Christ. Was Jesus born then? Uh, let's say it together. One, two, three. What's the answer? Was Jesus born then? No. Okay. You passed Monday night. Right. So, but the Spirit of Christ was at work already before he was born. Please note that. So the Spirit, we're dealing with God. The Spirit of Christ was working in the Old Testament prophets 
to speak about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And just to finish, note at the end here, preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So note, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, right, where God is. And angels longing to look into the things that the Holy Spirit has actually informed the Old Testament prophets. And indeed, to us, he's preached the good news to you, the readers of Peter's letter in the first century, but derivatively to us, by the Holy Spirit. And it's the good news, the good news that the New Testament calls the gospel concerning Christ. That is, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ who is all on about the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories of Christ. Now, with that big thought in mind, can you see why we are spending a whole week on the Holy Spirit? As some authors write, the Bible sets forth the bestowal and ministry of the Spirit as the true climax of God's generosity and the supreme glory of this gospel age. So for the rest of the talk, what I'm going to do is split up, as you'll see in your outlines, and can someone shout out a page number for me? You know, 27. Page 27, you'll see an outline. And you'll see that I've uh, divided up the talk for tonight from, uh, with the prophetic age the fulfill, uh, of the Spirit, the fulfilled age of the Spirit, and the gospel age of the Spirit. <clears throat> because it talks about those things that we just pointed out. It's how the Holy Spirit worked in the past, in the present, and as it were, in the future. Now, the other thing I need to say is this, and that is that unlike most of the churches that you go to, where each week you'll hear a, a talk from one passage of the Bible, uh, I'm actually going to be looking at a number of passages in the Bible. And, and that's because we're looking at a particular doctrine or theme or teaching in the Bible. That's not my normal practice, and I hope it's not your normal practice, actually, in terms of speaking. Right. That is, the bread and butter should be looking at one text and working through and just working chronologically chapter by chapter. But because we have this unique opportunity through the week, I'm going to be doing it such that we look at a number of passages. So it'll be a little different to perhaps what is normally uh, experienced in your churches and can I say that for those of us who think, oh, this seems so academic, let me assure you that if this is God's word, it will apply in ways beyond your wildest dreams. And I hope you will sit there and recognize how that does its work because it's God that we're dealing with. So I have to point to the prophetic age of the Spirit. Now, the Bible is like this, a sitcom, right? It's like parks and recreation or... Gilmore Girls, if that's your preference. Right? That is, it's, it's one big story with lots and lots of different episodes. And just in case you're wondering, that's the only comparison I'm going to make between the Gilmore Girls and the Bible. Right? It's just one story with lots and lots of different episodes. There are 66 episodes, actually. 39 episodes in the Old Testament. 27 episodes in the New Testament. And by the Holy Spirit... Every single episode points to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that will follow, the subsequent glories, right? Each episode somehow points to that. And let me remind you, therefore, back in episode 1 of the promises that God made to Abram. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Have a look there. Now, I put it up on the screen because some of you may have different versions of the Bible, and that may confuse you, and I don't want you to be confused, right? So this is the English Standard Version, 
I've just chosen that because it's just a little bit more literal, and I think you guys can handle that. Right? It's not that it's superior, it's just a little bit more literal that might help us in our study. This is a very famous passage. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is, God promises to bless Abram. That's a big word that keeps on coming through. Bless, bless, bless. God promised to bless Abram with a new land, right? a new name, a new nation, an entire new identity. And like God, it's an outgoing identity where Abram and his new family are to be outwardly focused, to be a blessing note to all the peoples of the earth, to all the nations. And let me let you in on a secret. Somehow this involves, by the Spirit of Christ, pointing us to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. What? doesn't talk about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. But we've heard the secret already, haven't we? Somehow that's going to point to that. I hope you'll see that by the end of this time. But let's continue the story. As the story continues, God keeps his promises. Abraham's family becomes a great nation. But because of their rebellion against God that reflects the rebellion of Adam and Eve, they spiral into greater and greater depths of sin. But God keeps these very promises. He did make them into a great nation. He rescued them from Egypt in a blaze of signs and wonders. He brought them into a a land that he called the promised land, and he blessed the nations through them. He gave them kings to bless them. And for a weekend, under one king named Solomon, it would have felt as if God had fulfilled his promises to Abram. Because under the reign of Solomon, everything was as if they are in the new land. They've got their king. There is peace. There is prosperity. But sadly, Solomon and all the kings after him failed in some sense over and over again. But there was a king who towers over the rest of them. The king before Solomon, the father of Solomon named David. And look what had the at the beginning of David's reign. And Samuel, who was a prophet, one of the prophets presumably, that the spirit of Christ was working through, he took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers. And note the spirit Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now, David, please note, does not tower over all the kings because he is the most holy, or because he's the most wise, or because he's the most courageous, or because he was ruddy and handsome. Rather, he towers over all the others because of God's promise to him as the Spirit. Spirit anointed king. And what's his promise? 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled, this is God's prophecy, and he's speaking to David through a prophet named Nathan. He says, When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. 
and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. You hear the promises of God to this spirit-anointed King David? God promised to establish David's kingdom forever. Unlike Saul, who was the king before him, who God took his spirit away from, who God took his kingship away from. And God promises to be a father. Note, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He promises to be a father to every son who sits on the throne of King David after David dies. That's basically what he's saying. Right? He will be a father to him, and he will be a son. The, the, the line of David will be sons of God. So therefore, that title, Son of God, note, doesn't refer only to Jesus. It refers to every king who sat on the throne of King David. So who was the king after David? Solomon. Right. He's a son of God. Who was the king after Solomon? Anybody? Rehoboam? Yeah. And Jeroboam, did you say? Well, Jeroboam was actually up the north. Yep, so Rehoboam was on the south. <clears throat> north, south, doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, so Rehoboam was on the south. There was a guy named Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And he was up the north. The, the kingdom split in two. There was a ten northern tribes, two southern tribes. Every king in the north is bad. That's where Michael Jackson got his song from. I'm bad, I'm bad, you know it, I'm bad. They're, they're all the kings in the north. That's their theme song. In, in the south, there are various kings. Some of them are good. Most of them are bad. But there's Rehoboam. And then there's Josiah. <laughs> Josiah. Um, <laughs> I should say Josiah, Josiah. Uh, Hezekiah, uh, Jehoiakim. He's the Korean king, yeah. Uh, and 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 Jehoiachin, right? He's the Chinese king, right? But they're all sons of God, right? They all have the title Son of God in the south because of this promise to David. They've all being spirit-anointed in some sense because of this promise to David. But each son of God fails in various ways. David himself committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband, Uriah, ultimately sinned against God by his own admission in Psalm 51, which I think you looked at today, yeah? Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. We're going to look at that tomorrow night. Solomon married 700 wives and 300 concubines and started worshipping their gods. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Can you someone on the street who would go out to Jerusalem and say, hey, I'm a child of Solomon, and everyone else would go, well, so am I, so am I, so am I, big deal. He had 700 wives, right? He failed dismally, and each son of God fails, causing the nation of Israel to split in two, as we talked about before, 10 northern tribes conquered by Assyria, two southern tribes conquered by Babylon. And we're left wondering, what about God's promises to Abram? 
What about God's promises to David? What about this promise? But listen to God's promise. You looked at this in your seminar today, I think, in Isaiah 11, right? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what the eye sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Right? The exiled nation of Israel is compared to a tree stump out of which a beautiful shoot will spring and a branch will bear fruit. And who is this stump? Jesse. Not Jesse Reeves. Jesse, the father of David. Jesse, the tree stump. And out of this tree stump will come a shoot, a living shoot. And what do we learn about this living shoot? Well, he is, upon, he is the one upon whom the Spirit will rest. A spiritual shoot. And God goes on to speak about another Spirit-anointed figure in Isaiah. Isaiah 42, which you also looked at. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my Spirit upon him. And he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard upon the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a family, uh, sorry, a, a, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Here is the spirit anointed one. Here is the figure that God calls his servant and he is glorious and God delights in this servant. God puts his spirit Spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the whole world. And then this servant is described again in Isaiah 61 that you looked at in your seminar, but let's look at it more closely again. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. This servant will not do this in a way that's going to be seen as powerful, seen as admirable, or seen as influential. No, he won't even raise his voice, we're told, from... Isaiah 42, right? He's not even going to break a twig. He's not even going to blow out any tiny flame on a candle. In fact, he's trying to keep the flame alive. In fact, look how unimpressive he will be according to Isaiah 53 on the screen. This spirit-anointed one was oppressed, afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. 
So here is the spirit-anointed shoot of Jesse, the servant who will gloriously bring justice to all the nations. But he will do so unexpectedly, unimpressively, through silence and suffering and death. Can you hear the Spirit of Christ working through prophets like Isaiah predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories? Do you see that? That's the Spirit of Christ, right? So all those passages that you read in your seminar, that was the Spirit of Christ speaking to you. See, here is the prophetic age of the Spirit. That's what you dealt with in your seminar today. And so now we come, point three, to the fulfilled age of the Spirit. The fulfilled age of the Spirit. Luke 4, in verses 16 to 19. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Sound familiar? It's Isaiah 61, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he quotes Isaiah 61. The Spirit of Christ is working in that prophet and he's reading that. And listen to what happens next in verse 20. And he, that is Jesus, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus claims to fulfill the role of the spirit-anointed servant. And how did he do that? He did heal the blind. He did make the lame walk. He did liberate people who were oppressed by poverty and hunger and even demons. And he did proclaim the good news of the gospel. And yet he was still rejected as the servant by his own people all the way to the cross. Here are the sufferings of Christ being fulfilled that his spirit prophesied in the Old Testament prophets. And just as the spirit had predicted, listen to what else was written in Luke 24. Then he, that's Jesus, said to them, his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms no, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus opened their minds. How do you think he did that? And said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name 
to all nations. That sound familiar? All nations? Beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Who do you think that is? It's His Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. See, where is it written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise? He says in the Scriptures. But what Scriptures is he talking about? Well, the Old Testament Scriptures. That His Spirit was at work in the Old Testament prophets before He was born. And we've looked at a number of those passages. But note, how does Jesus ultimately fulfill the role of the Spirit-filled servant? To bring justice to the nations. Because that's what we're told in Isaiah. Well, that's a question for you. I think the next slide, there we go. Turn to the person next to you. How does Jesus ultimately fulfill the role of the spirit-filled servant to bring justice to the nations, do you think? Why don't you speak to the person next to you? Think about the life of Jesus. Hello. Get back together again. Anybody on the red team this time? Any thoughts from the red team? How does Jesus ultimately fulfill the role of the spirit-filled servant to bring justice to the nations? Yes. Right. Yeah. Really, really, ultimately, ultimately. Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you study English, don't you? <laughs> but yeah, yeah that's, good. that's right. Ultimately, that will be the case, won't it? That is so true. That is so true. Any other thoughts? From any team now? Yes, Tom. Yeah, yeah, right, okay, yeah. Death and resurrection, ultimately, yeah. I think that's quite right, isn't it? That is, it's, it's not through the power of armies that he brings about justice. Not through invading another country. It's not through social justice either, is it? In wanting to right wrongs, inequities, you know, making sure that the victim is no longer oppressed as not through political change and nor is it through action on climate either that he brings about justice to the nations now Jesus ultimately fulfills the role of the spirit filled servant through his obedience to death even death on a cross and rising from the dead in glory so that repentance and forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. That's how he brings about ultimate justice. How's that justice brought about? Well, at the cross, when we deserve punishment, Jesus dies the death that you and I deserve. See, what's the ultimate injustice? 
it's God allowing us simply to go on in our rebellion against him without any consequences. That's the world we live in, isn't it? But God's done something about that through his spirit-filled, anointed servant. So much so that we come to Galatians chapter 3. Remember we started with the promise to Abram? Look at what we learn here about that promise to Abram. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and law is all about justice, by how? Becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, those promises from Genesis 12, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That word Gentile actually means nations, right? That's how you can uh, translate it. So that we might receive, surprise, surprise, the promised spirit through faith. Did you know that Abraham's promise was all about the giving of the spirit? He didn't mention it in Genesis 12. But as God fulfills that promise through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we receive the blessing as nations from all over the world so that we might receive the promise spirit through faith. That is by trusting in his promise. Do you hear that? The promises to Abram to bless the nations is ultimately fulfilled when Jesus became a curse for you and me. When he died the death that you and I deserve, taking upon himself the curse that we deserve. I know we deserve it, don't we? You only have to scratch your heart and dig down a little bit to know how much we have rebelled against God. And God took sin so seriously that he sent his son to die the death that you and I deserve. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He's now in heaven. And he's poured out his spirit from there. And this brings us to point four, the gospel age of the Spirit. You see, what is the gospel of the Spirit? What is the momentous news that the Spirit declares to the nations? Romans 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, that the Spirit of Christ was working through, in the Holy Scriptures. And what does it concern? His son who, note, was a descendant from David. That rings bells, doesn't it? According to the flesh. So in other words, he descended from David's line, just as he promised in 2 Samuel 7, and was declared to be, note, the Son of God. Remember, that's 2 Samuel 7, the Son of God in power. How? According to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So here is the Spirit's gospel promised beforehand through the Old Testament prophets. It concerns God's Son, a descendant of David, and who better to be the Son of God than God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And he became the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And that's what the Holy Spirit declares. 
And what the Spirit declares is that Jesus rose from the dead to become Lord, to become number one of our lives, to be the center of our universe. Jesus is Lord because of his death and resurrection. But please note that the most prominent role of the Holy Spirit is not about giving gifts. It's not about speaking in tongues. It's not about miracles and other supernatural experiences. It's not about walking in the Spirit. And we're going to learn about all these things. You know what the most prominent role of the Spirit is? It is to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Put another way, the Spirit's role is to be the evangelist through all the ages. He was so through the prophets of the Old Testament. He was so certainly through his Spirit-anointed son, Jesus, and his primary role as the evangelist is to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that began at his enthronement. Jesus' enthronement. In Luke 24, we read these words. Luke 24, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You disciples are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What's that power from on high? That's the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Father that Jesus sends with power from on high came in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. That day brought in the gospel age of the Spirit. On that day, the apostles were gathered in Jerusalem as asked. And they saw stuff like, like um, fire, tongues of fire on people's heads, you might recall. They heard stuff like wind blowing around. And they, they heard languages, other languages that people couldn't understand. They saw things, they heard things, they felt things that marked this seismic disruption to human history. And here is the description of the divine phenomenon that took place that day. In Acts chapter 2, verse 29, next slide, we read these verses. This is the interpretation of all those events, right? This is Peter saying to everyone who is gathered, he said, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he... David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. How did he speak about that? Well, through the Spirit of Christ in him, right? That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What were they seeing? Tongues of fire. What were they hearing? Languages, other languages. 
But what was that all about? It wasn't about like, whoa, look at this work of the Spirit. Like, wow, we can speak in different tongues now. And look, we can create all this. No, it was all about Jesus. That he is Lord because of his death and resurrection. The day of Pentecost is the day the Spirit of Christ was sent on the apostles to declare that Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. That's what it's all about. Sometime our queen, and I say our queen, is going to pass from this earth unless the Lord returns before she dies. And there will be an enthronement, possibly a very sad enthronement, of someone else in her line. And that will be a huge pomp and ceremony. But that enthronement ain't nothing compared to this enthronement. And this day of enthronement, which is what Acts 2 is all about, ushered in the so-called overlap of the ages. I hope you can see that. It's a diagram that's not too great. But the bottom line, right, is this age of history. The cross, of course, is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the line at the top is the age to come. But what happened when Jesus rose from the dead? His spirit was poured in into the world right? and on that day what he did effectively was drag in the new age and in dragging in the new age he created the overlap of the ages and that's what you and I are in now we're in the overlap of the ages the age of the spirit the overlap of the ages and we will wait until the return of Jesus when things will be really 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 ultimately ultimately right just but in the meantime, the spirit is at work, but it's the spirit of the resurrected Jesus, unlike the spirit in the Old Testament, which is not the spirit of the resurrected Jesus, because Jesus wasn't born. But the spirit of the resurrected Jesus is with us now in this overlap of the ages, this new age. So in very real sense, the day of Pentecost began the end of time. And what did Peter declare at the dawn of this age, look at Acts chapter 2 now, verse 36. We're on the home stretch. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people that day were cut to the heart by these words. They asked God for forgiveness. They turned back to him by receiving Jesus Christ as their resurrected Lord. And I want to ask you, is that what you should be doing tonight? It may be that like me, you've been coming to conferences like this and even going to a church. But perhaps tonight, for the first time, you realize that he's actually not number one of your life. Like me, he was a good number two or number three now, but he's not actually number one. He's not actually living as your Lord and Savior. And if that's you, then can I urge you 
turn to him, even this night. Come and talk to one of us. Anybody up front, any of the staff who've been leading your seminars, you might want to turn to him. Because we're in the last days, right? We live on the edge of eternity. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And brothers and sisters, that is the time we live in now, right? Have you ever seen a high-rise building professionally demolished? Have you seen those? It's a high-rise building and there's bombs put in secret locations and the explosives go off and you see these poofs of wind here and there around the building and then it seems like an eternity and then suddenly the whole building collapses. That moment between the bombs exploding and the buildings collapsing, that's called the last days. We're in that poof period now. The last days, you can call it now the poof period, right? That's the moment that we're in. We haven't got a lot of time. We're on the edge of eternity now. He will come back. And what can you expect in these last days that unless you turn back to him, there will be consequences. But why, why wouldn't you turn back to him? A final verse for tonight, 1 Peter 4 actually says, for those of us who are in Christ, note, beloved, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Did you note that? But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. That is like our Lord Jesus, we can expect to suffer and look forward to glory. Just like the Spirit of Christ was working in the prophets talking about Jesus, so too, if we are in Jesus, we can expect suffering before glory. And the kind of suffering we can expect are insults for naming the name of Christ. And as we live for his glory, as we proclaim his wonderful news, we must expect opposition. But more of that, in the days of him. So this is the time, dear brothers and sisters, to beg God for forgiveness firstly, have you? If you're not sure you've done that, please do business with God tonight. This is the time to face opposition as the Spirit enables us to persevere for his glory. This is a time to rely on his spirit as the evangelist as we pray for our friends and family who yet do not know Jesus as their Lord. This is a time to pray for the nations who yet do not know Jesus as their Lord. Three billion people in this world do not yet know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That is why we want to send people to the nations. And this is the time to declare to them that Jesus rose from the dead to be Lord of heaven and earth. This is the time. And so as we bathe in scripture this week, 
please know that this is so, so real. Will you pray with me? We thank you, dear Father, for the privilege it is to know that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth because he rose from the dead. In his name alone, we know that people can be saved. And we pray that this night, those of us who need to do business with you will do so. And that you might even raise up from amongst us people to go to the nations. In his name, for your glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing in here.